we come before you again and uh, we just see lots of pain and we see destruction and we see wars. Uh, Lord, we see pandemics all coming at once. Uh, but Lord, we, we are in your presence this morning. We've been singing about you all morning. We know that you are in control. We know we don't have to, we don't have to worry. We don't have to stress. But Lord, we do pray for those who are suffering right now. We think of um, particularly the innocents in, uh, in the Ukraine who are um, losing their life, who are having to flee, and the future certainly is very uncertain. We ask God, again, we plead for your mercy in this country. We pray, Lord, that you would bring peace. We pray, Lord, that you would bring stability and that you would, bring, uh, that you would save this group of people, Lord, from destruction. We pray, Lord, for those who are who have suffering great loss from the floods last week around us in Brisbane and New South Wales as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that we live in a country that, uh, where people are able to help, where governments help. And we pray, God, though, that needs will, will be met for the many thousands. And lastly, Lord, we know even within our own church family, there's people home today sick with, with COVID and other things as well. Lord, we lift them up to you. We pray for fast healing. We thank you, Lord, that we can worship today without having to wear special coverings and things like that. And we just pray, God, that we can move ahead now. We ask, Lord, that, you would, uh, that your hand would be at work and that you would deliver us from this sickness in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, the, I didn't mention it last week, but the month of prayer and fasting was amazing. Right? Who agrees with me? Yeah. I know a lot of you were there because we had about 50 people here every Wednesday night praying. And I want to just encourage you, you know, if you, were, if you came, I asked you to come at least once in February, and a lot of you did, I, want to, I just want to say, why don't you try that again? That was really good. Pick a Wednesday night once a month, come along and join us. I guess what I really want to see is this movement of prayer at Hills Church, hold fast, and for something to, to kind of be born out of that even. It already is, but even more so. And so I, just, I encourage you, I, I know I say it a lot, and maybe you're getting sick of it, but Wednesdays at 6.30 is the place to be. So there you go. Done. All right. We are in a series called The Story. All right, let me ask you this one. I need some more feedback coming here this morning. Who's enjoying this? Yes. Oh, that's good. <laughs> the story is, if you're, if you're new to Hills today, is a compilation of selected passages from the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, obviously not the whole Bible, just to give us like a, a high view, that, that kind of that great story arc that, uh, that, that is in the, in the word that sometimes we miss when we, go, when we, get, uh, when we move into the, the individual stories. That's the idea of why we're doing this. If you're joining us, like I said, for the first time, you can, you can join in. Sadly, we ran out of the books, which actually, not sad, it was really good because it means that you're all in on it, but you can actually get this book in Kindle. And so if you want to join us, it's not too late to do that. I didn't mention the Kindle book earlier because I really wanted you to buy the books that we bought, but now you know. If you want an electronic version, you can get one of them as well. This week is chapter five. Here's the story so far, and again, I tried it, I'm giving you the the big chunks, okay? Number one, God created a perfect world that includes us humans made in his image. That's why we have value, you know, we have purpose. We're image bearers. The first humans were without sin and in perfect relationship with God. This is why God created us, for that relationship purpose. Number two, humans rebelled because they wanted to be like God. We wanted to be like God and sin entered the world and we live in that broken world today as a consequence. 
Number three, humans were banished from Eden, and because of sin, God and humans were separated because God's perfect and we're not. That relationship has a gap. It's broken. Number four, God has no desire to leave it like that because he loves us. And so his redemption plan began. Number five, he chose Abraham and Sarah to start a new nation that would bless all nations. This would be the nation that would stand out from the world. Israel was to be different so that the world would know God through them. And in fact, as we know, when, he, when, when God says that you will be a nation that blesses all nations, because Jesus would come through the Israelites. That's where that blessing would be. Number six, from Abraham and Sarah came Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah gave birth to Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and they were the patriarchs of Israel, and they moved to Egypt to survive the famine. Number seven, in Egypt, the family exploded in numbers over the next 400 years or so. But also along came a new pharaoh who didn't really know the originals, you know, um, Joseph and, and his family from then, and decided to enslave them and to build great cities with this family, this big family now of Israel, called Israel. Number eight, God uses Moses, and through a demonstration of power, he rescues them from slavery and leads them out of Egypt towards the land that he promised to Abraham like 700 years before that. You know, all those things that God said would happen do happen. That's one thing we learn when we read the Bible. And last week, we ended with God's final defeat of the Egyptians as Israel crossed the Red Sea. Everyone's favorite story, isn't it? was mine anyway when I was, when I was a kid. This week, this week's reading covers, uh, if you read chapter 5, hopefully you did, it covers basically Exodus 19 through to 40. And one thing that you need to keep in mind is that we're moving through the Bible really quickly. Remember, like I said, it's the high view that we're, we're, we're trying to track as we duck down and get applications from the, the actual stories as we go through. The main thing for you guys is you're not going to learn the big arc just from hearing me every Sunday. You need to read it, okay? And so that's why you have a book. And if you've fallen behind, I want to encourage you to catch up. It's not very hard to catch up because each chapter is only about a 15-minute read. That's at my pace anyway. You probably do it quicker. So I want to encourage you to keep doing that. All right. Chapter 5. From the Red Sea, the Israelites, they move on into the wilderness. There's, there's kind of um, a lot of discussion about where they actually head from there, where is actually Mount Sinai. There's a few ideas that people have, but that's not that important for us today. There's a series of events that happen in, the, in, the, in this intervening period. There's a lack of water, and God provides. There's a lack of food. God provides, you know, the story of manna on the ground and, and quail as well. There's an attack from... From the Amalekites, God provides victory over them. And that leads us to Mount Sinai, which is pretty much the focus of chapter 5 in the story that we're reading. And so here's what it says in chapter 19 of Exodus. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai and they set out from Rephidim. I'm going to just go with that. They entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So we're about three months on from when they left, or two months, actually, because it's at the start of the third month. But apparently, they stay here for like 12 months or more, which is pretty amazing. It's kind of like an extended mountain retreat. And God, helpfully, has provided the catering for this whole... <laughs> 
period as well. But this was an important moment when God wants, I think what he wants them to do is to stop and learn who they were to be as God's chosen people. This was when they began the journey of this new life. You know, they're now living with God and for God. This is the moment post-salvation. I guess you could say this is when the discipleship kicked in for the Israelites. Because remember, these were the people who would reveal God to the world. They would be the nation that would bless all nations. Salvation didn't just mean you're free and that's it, off you go. It meant a whole new way of life. That's what we're seeing here starting to happen. We often think of Mount Sinai as this uh, you know, angry God forcing his will on people and they're kind of trembling at the base the whole time. If you watched the Ten Commandments back in the 80s, that's kind of the view you got, right? That was my view of things because I watched that movie. I'm not sure that we're supposed to read it like that. You know, there was times when God's patience was tested. We know that. And his glory was so profound that there was times when they trembled. Those moments are there. But they were there for 12 months. We have to think about that. We can read it in a day, or 15 minutes actually. <laughs> but they were there for 12 months. This is a moment when God gathers his people together and he shows them what it means to live for him and actually we're going to find out with him. He's showing them what holiness looks like. God is meeting with his people. That's kind of what I want you to see in this picture at the mountain. And if you did read chapter 5 this week, you may have gotten a little confused because has anyone tried to work out how many times does Moses go, Moses go up this mountain? Does, is, it, is it just me? It's like, I thought he'd already done that. Why is he going back up there again? Because in the movie, he only did it twice. <laughs> I've been led astray. But actually, he does. If you read this, actually, if you read it in the, the full version, all of the chapters of, of Exodus, he's up and down and he's up and down. Keeping track of it is very hard and confusing. But from what I can tell, there's at least seven times that Moses makes the trek up the mountain, and some say maybe eight, over this 12-month period. But here we are at the beginning, the first trip up the mountain, the first hike up Mount Sinai. So we're in verse 3. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. He said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. See, it's kind of, God's saying this, it, it's a... You know, we, when you watch the movie, it's kind of like God shouting down like this and everyone's doing this. But God's using almost like a poetic way of saying, look how amazing this is for us. Verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words you are to speak. To the Israelites. And so he does. He tells the people what God has told them. And then verse 8, it says, The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord, which is probably trek number two, right? Up the mountain. 
there's a long sequence of events over 12 months. Lots of things happen. A lot of it really good. Some of it not so good. Over this period of time, God reveals lots of things, but there are, there's probably three key things that I want to share with you today that he wants his people to know. And I just want to acknowledge, or actually, I did borrow these three titles from um, Randy Frazee, who, who's doing the small group videos, if any of you are watching that as well. But don't worry, most of the work in today's sermon is, is mine. Okay. But I did, <laughs> I did borrow his three headings, because I thought they were really good. Yeah, 10% allowed anyway before it's copyright infringement, yeah. <laughs> Number one is this. God is defining a way of life for his people. You know, all his long list of laws and guidelines, they center on just two things. They center on a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. And by right, I mean love. That's the right bit. Love. God was about the greatest command all through the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. It's all through the Old Testament. It's all through the New Testament. It can be distilled down to this. Love God and love each other. Seems too simplistic. That's why the Bible's thick. (laughs) But that's it if you want to distill it down. It defines what God is in in so many ways. And and it should define us as we become his people. The Ten Commandments are the starting point, but then definitely not the end point. God provides a lot more more instruction beyond just the Ten Commandments. But if you read the Ten Commandments this week, and you may have if you read along, you you notice again there's two broad categories. Commandments 1 to 4 are about how we relate to God, and 5 to 10 are about how we relate to each other. And I'm going to read them all to you now. I can't remember the last time we read all the Ten Commandments in church. Now, the verse numbers helpfully do not align with the commandment numbers. So I've removed the verse numbers and just put in 1 to 10. All right, does everyone know what I mean? All right. So Exodus 20, 1 to 17. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation and of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Number four, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Number five. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. 
Ten Commands. It's like the starting point that God started out with his people. I'll just distill it down to ten things so that you remember. Because as someone mentioned this morning, the first time Moses shared it, he didn't have it on the stone tablets, right? And so they had to actually remember it for a while before he got back and got it written down for him. Ten things made it easy to remember. Remember, And you can be tempted to read these and think, I read those three with you, Pastor, I think I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm good. I don't have idols. I don't steal. I don't murder. I don't commit adultery. I don't covet. Mm, mostly, I, I, <laughs> I keep the Sabbath. Try to. I don't use God's name in God's name in vain. It's mostly the people on the TV. I pretty much one of my parents, except when they do something that I don't like. You know, but is it true? See, one thing we know about following God is that it's about the state of our heart that matters the most, because the heart is the core of who we are. Who we are is what God is most interested in. So there was another mountaintop moment, kind of like the Ten Commandment moment, only this time it was 1,500 years later, just after Jesus selects 12 disciples. Interesting how it was 12. The parallels keep coming, if you've been following along through our series. And so he too goes up on a mountain and preaches a famous sermon on the mount on this mountain, like Moses bringing the message about a new life with God. Jesus and Moses kind of doing the same thing. Only this time, he leaves no doubt what we're talking about here. We're talking about complete radical repentance that goes right to the heart of who we are. So you say, you may say, I'm good with the murder one. Well, here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Let's just let the Holy Spirit send that message into the places it needs to for a second. Because we thought we were good with the do not murder command from the Ten Commandments. Jesus is saying, it's deeper than you think. It's about who we are. What about this one? I noticed it got very quiet. In Matthew 5... 27 to 28, he says, You have heard the commandment that says, You must not commit adultery. I say, Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's making the point the commandments of Mount Sinai were not just a list of what not to do or what to do. This is God leading us back to the people we were created to be. You may think, but this is impossibly high. Jesus has taken the bar and made it too high for us. But God doesn't ask us to do something that's not possible, church. This is about a new heart. This is about transforming our minds so that our desires actually change. So that those lustful things actually can 
go from us. Everything about us begins to align with the example of Jesus. I'm not sitting here pounding the pulpit today, church, trying to make you feel bad about these things. I'm saying that there's a calling to holiness. This is God's plan of restoring us. He's pointing us back to the garden. He's pointing us back to the people we were meant to be, and he provides the way back. He takes care of the impossible bit, by the way. Holy people, people who love God with all our heart and love others like we love ourselves, transformed people. This is what we're about. It's important that we talk about it over and over and again. It's important for me that I have to talk about it for myself. And we have to talk about it together. Because we have to grab hold of this bit by bit. And that's the story of the Israelites. Moving into the promised land bit by bit. Being like God bit by bit. It's for us too. Point number two today is that God builds a place to dwell among his people. This is the second thing that we get out of this 12 months at the mountain In Exodus 25, he says, Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. There wasn't a lot of mention of that in the reading this week, by the way. But there's actually literally chapters and chapters about the tabernacle construction. If you want to read that yourself, you can. God would dwell in this special place that that was worthy of him. But he would be among them wherever they would go. When they would break camp, the tabernacle would go with them. And he wanted them to worship him and follow follow him. He wanted them to make him their king, the center of who they were. God wants to live in a love relationship with people just like he did in the Garden of Eden. That's the end goal for us. But as we know, we're rebellious A sinless God can't be in relationship with a sinful people. Even at Mount Sinai, right where he was, there was big issues. They'd just been saved by a massive demonstration of his power coming out of Egypt. And just because Moses goes up to the mountain for 40 days at some point, some of them give up. This new life was already too hard, maybe too boring, maybe too hard in their hearts, you know, to, be, to begin with, they didn't really get to the place that they were supposed to be. And as we know, there's this issue with the golden calf that comes along. I always feel really disappointed when I read that bit with Aaron. It's like, I don't get what he's doing. But anyway, maybe that's another sermon. It just seems unbelievable that they would do this after everything they had seen from God. But actually, it's not that unbelievable. It still happens today. People give up on God all the time. It's too hard. It's too costly He's gone quiet in my life, you know, so I'm off to find meaning somewhere else. That's a common one. Remember, this is the same group who had just said, and we read it earlier, we will obey. That's what they'd said when Moses came down the first time. We will obey. But we see this happens. One thing we know about God, though, is he keeps taking us back. Again and again and again. That's the pattern through the Bible. If there's one thing you can see through the Old Testament is the amount of times God takes back his people after they let him down, after they let him down, after they let him down. It's like this relentless love that he has. Such a gracious God. 
But I ask you to see the point. God is with us. It's the, the last thing Jesus said before he left the earth. You know, he said, I will be with you always. He wants to be with us. And I think that was the idea of the tabernacle. Number three, God provides a system of sacrificial atonement. This is what he did for the, the Israelites, the third thing. And there's no easy way to say it, but it involved animal sacrifice. You know, we, we struggle to read these bits, don't we, these days? Because I think in our culture, when you think of animal sacrifice, it's generally a very pagan ritual that's going on somewhere that's pretty sus, right? But for us, for the followers of Jesus, animal sacrifice ended at the cross. But for God to dwell with his people in, in this time that we're talking about in Exodus, there needs to be atonement for sin. Sin has consequences, and a perfectly just God can't ignore it because he's perfect and he's just. And so this system, although the system itself is not yet perfect, was established for Israel. Again, we don't read Leviticus in, in the story, but if you, if you want to give it a go this week, I encourage it. There's a lot of procedures over there about how this sacrificial system is going to work. Right? It's kind of hard to read, to be honest. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of procedures to cover all the different situations. And what I got from reading some of it is that God is so perfect and holy, a sacrifice has to be done in a way that is worthy of him. It couldn't just be something that was cheap and easy. It had to be costly. In Leviticus 17, you didn't read it this week, it says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's, it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It's important that we understand this for a reason. In Leviticus 4, it says, in this way the priest will make atonement for them for the sin they have committed, and they will be forgiven. So this is the system that, that God established at the mountain for them, so that he could, be, he could dwell among them so that they could be in relationship with him. I mean, yes, he was dwelling with them in the tabernacle, but like I said, it wasn't a perfect system. Only the high priest could enter the most holy place and only at a specific time and after a specific ceremony of cleansing and atonement. It was good. And it served the Israelites for a long time. But it lacked something that direct relationship with God was still not there, like it was for Adam and Eve. I hope you can see what's happening here. God wants his people to be set apart for his saved people to show the way for the world, back to the restored life he had in mind for, for all of us, for all people. He provided the instructions of how to live via the commandments and the law. This is who you are to be. He provided means for his presence to dwell through the tabernacle and later the temple. He provided a way for forgiveness to be made so that we could be made right with God or so the Israelites could be made right with God through the ongoing atoning sacrifice of animals. All of these things set up Israel so that they can move into the new life into Canaan. It's the same for us except it's a very profound difference for us. The death of Jesus on the cross was the perfect sacrifice. He did what the animal sacrifice couldn't. He was the perfect sacrifice and therefore the last one taking on our sin, past, present, and future. Now instead of a priest that mediates in the holy place in the tabernacle, Jesus is our new high priest and our connection with God is direct because of him. He is the way. In fact, the temple 
is now here, us. The tabernacle isn't right here. You're looking at the tabernacle. <laughs> All of you. The relationship is now direct. God dwells in us because we are completely forgiven. And the righteousness of Christ is now ours. And that holy life that we're called to is now for us to take hold of. That's the lesson we're getting from chapter 5 this week. When Jesus preached his Sermon on the Mount, a bit like Moses did, he was clear that it wasn't about what we did so much as who we are becoming. It, like I keep saying, it's about the heart. It's, it's right at our core. And now the Holy Spirit provides the power to change my heart. This is the life Jesus was talking about in John 10.10 where he said, I've come so that you can have life to the full. Life to the full is what Jesus intended, what God intended for us right back at the beginning in the garden and what we, he is making a way for us to have right now. He's not talking about accumulating stuff and getting promotions at work and having the best holidays. That stuff's all good. I like it. He's saying, though, that a life to the full is a life that changes to be like Jesus, the original intention for us. It must be good when we are transformed to be like him. There's something very satisfying that comes out of it. It's very rewarding. There's contentment when we are like him. Yes, Jesus is still to return and the final chapter will be written and that part of the journey will happen. But church, we need to know that the victory is already won and God lives in us now. This new life is here for us to take. God's made the way and provided the means. There's a, there's a great example that we, we often use in Alpha uh, around World War II, you know, on, on D-Day, that was essentially the end of the war, right? Because once they had a successful landing at Normandy, the war was really over. But it, we all know it went on for another six months or more. Essentially, the mopping up operation had to happen. And yes, it was difficult. There was loss of life and all that sort of stuff. But Jesus' death on, and, and resurrection was like that D-Day landing. The war was over. We're in the mopping up situation right now until Christ comes and then, then the victory really is declared, right? And we celebrate together. I find it interesting though. I think what God's trying to say is, when I read through this scripture, it's like the Israelites. They were there to show the world God. The church likewise has that role. As we're sitting at the mountain, so to speak, receiving his word and being transformed, we're showing the world through that transformation. We're pointing people to God. Twelve months while they sit and learn this new way of life in the desert, there was no rush to get off to the promised land. You know, that's what I would want to do. God's beaten the Israelites. They're off our back. In fact, they're gone for good. We know they perished. What amazing freedom. Now we've got the, the covenant of, of the new land in Canaan. Let's go. And God says, nope. We're stopping in the desert. It's probably dry. It's probably hot. And you have the same meal three times a day for 12 months. You know, 
But there's a, there's a very profound thing going on here. God is forming them. Just sit and know who God is and his ways. I think that's what was going on here. Let it change them. Let us be the people of God before we move out. And as we finish today, I'm just going to, I want to repeat the same pattern. You can come up near our team if you want. We're going to repeat the same pattern that we've done for the last two weeks. Like the Israelites, we're just going to pause. Because we've, we've opened the word again today, and I, and I just, I don't want to rush into a song and we're out to the coffee and tea, right? We're, we're going to do that. It's going to be awesome. But I, I just, I just want you to sit and think. We're not doing 12 months. We're just going to do two minutes of just you. Let God speak to you. Just try to ignore the distractions in the auditorium if you can. And just pray, God, who is the person that you are calling me to be? Ask the Holy Spirit to change you today to be set apart, to be holy, to be filled with love for God, to be filled with love for others.